So, so, so far we've got, you can solve it nicely in an array language if you just change the problem. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you restrict the problem to the most useful form of the problem, I will point out. <laughs> okay. uh, the most useful form of the problem. That's, you put that on a t-shirt. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with me, I've got four panelists. We're going to go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then we'll go to Marshall, then we'll go to Rich, and then we'll go to our special panelist today, John. I am Bob Terrio. I am a Jay enthusiast. Very enthusiastic about Jay. It's the earliest I've ever announced before. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I was uh, formerly a Jay programmer. I worked at Dialog for a while. Uh, now I develop BQN. Uh, I'm Rich Park. I'm an APL programmer and educator working for Dialogue Limited. Uh, and I'm John Ernest. I'm a professional K programmer, and uh, currently I'm working on a, an interactive uh, development environment called Decker with a, an array-flavored language. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I am a research scientist slash polyglot programmer with a huge passion for array languages, including all the languages we talk on this about on this podcast. And yeah, welcome to John. I think if we've got regular listeners, they'll know that Stephen, I think, has departed and is in the midst of a bicycle cycling trip right now. And so as a replacement for the representative of the K slash Q, mostly K today, languages uh, or language, we've got John, who was a past guest uh, that we interviewed two different times, I believe on episode 41 and 43, if I am recalling those numbers correctly from when I looked at them this morning. Highly recommend you go and check out those episodes, especially, I mean, both of them are fantastic, but uh, I really, really enjoyed the history that uh, you gave, John, of like the different K versions, because I think that is something that there are little bits and pieces of on the internet, but it's not like a, there's not a ton of folks that are able to speak super coherently to like going all the way back to the beginning up to where we are now with, you know, K7 and K9 or Shakti or whatever it's called. So a uh, huge plug. If you haven't heard those episodes already, go back and listen. We'll link them in the show notes and yeah, welcome. Welcome to the, the, you know, suite of panelists that we have here, John. <laughs> It's great to be back and to be promoted, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a small, small promotion. We're going to create, we, we, may, may or, we may or may not create a little section on the uh, ArrayWiki uh, APL site that mentions all the you know, part-time panelists because there's been a couple of them now. Marshall actually used to be one before. Were you a guest first or were you a, a guest panelist first, Marshall? I was a guest. So you went from guest to guest panelist. Yeah, and now I'm even second panelist, which is just crazy. <laughs> Senior principal panelist. Nope, nope. Still second panelist. I'm I'm working on my paneling skills, and maybe I'll be first panelist someday. <laughs> we should come. We should go. We should go full corporate and give people titles. So yeah, executive, <laughs> executive vice president <laughs> panelist. Uh, as long as I get a corner office. <laughs> no, you get the office that you have because this is this is all remote. Uh, <laughs> All right, uh, we've got uh, a few announcements slash follow-up slash ads. So I guess we'll we'll go to Bob with the first announcement, and then after that we'll go to, to Rich with two announcements, and then I'll spin the ball from there. And, and I'm going to go off, off script right off the bat, because I said I was going to make an announcement. I will make that announcement, but the first thing I want to do is congratulations to Connor's dad, oh. <laughs> who won a National Journalist Investigative Journalist Award for Canada. That is really impressive. Congratulations to your dad. Thanks. He will not know that this congratulatory statement was made because 
He definitely doesn't listen to this. <laughs> but uh, I will pass it along, and uh, I'm sure he'll be very grateful grateful for that. Uh, thanks. Well, I think that's a big deal. Good for him. Uh, and the announcement I was going to make was uh, Ed Gottsman has been working on the JWiki browser. And we actually have about a seven-minute video that we put together that just gives you the functionality of it. Now, this thing is, it works through the JQT interface at this point. But it gives you access to the JWiki. You literally hover over the different areas and it provides the pages of it. So it's very, very quick. And not only does it do the JWiki, it also does all the J forums. So if you're looking back through the forums, you literally hover over a year and a month and all the threads show up. And then as you go to an individual thread, all the postings show up. So it's it's actually really worth looking at. We're hoping to expand it in the future and give it access, general access to people. Right now, it's just a prototype, but it's a very impressive prototype. And is it online at the moment that you can go play around with it, or this is just a video? You cannot go play. No, you cannot go play around with it yet. No, it's not quite yet. Yet, he's just in the process. He's got four or five people testing it. I'm one of them. I'm one of the lucky few. Um, and he is looking to expand it, but it'll probably be a gradual rollout over the next month or two, I'm guessing, and then we'll have it out as a, as a general release. You'll still need to go through JQT, so you'll still need to have J downloaded at this point, but we are looking at other things, possibly trying to do something with Wasm or something like that. All right, cool. So for now, check out the link in the description to a video preview of what will be available in uh, one or two months. Rich, over to you. Uh, so yeah, if you can't get enough array language content, specifically APL content, there is a new episode of the APL show, this is a podcast I do with uh, other regular array show panelist, Adam Brzezowski. Uh We're talking about primitives, primitives that we'd like to see, primitives that have been modeled, that, but mainly ones that don't exist yet in Dialog APL specifically at least, uh, in that episode, but also at the beginning of that episode is an announcement that I'm not 100% sure if it's been brought up very recently uh, on the Arraycast. I know it has been probably talked about in the past, um, and that's the development of an, a proper array notation, literal array notation for APL. So currently, um, you sort of, for anything beyond vectors, beyond lists, you have to construct the array using primitive functions and, and things like that. Um, this idea has been talked about for a long time to have a, a literal way of denoting multi-dimensional nested arrays um, in your code, but there is finally an official proposal, um, ostensibly written, you know, by Adam, sort of for Dialog Limited, but because this is for APL, uh, we want to sort of establish this as something that any APL implementation might want to use. And so we think we should make it consistent um, across those as much as possible. So we're currently asking for feedback for, for, for this proposal. So we'll put a link to the APL wiki page on array notation uh, in the show notes, no doubt. And there will be, uh, well, there's like an info box at the top that gives you more information about where to find the proposal and where to give feedback. Awesome. So yeah, if you have feedback to give, check out that link in the description as well. We'll go to John for the uh, ad next slash. You may have something extra to add. Uh, sure. So uh, I've been asked to uh, point out to our listeners that 
1010 uh, Data is currently hiring for K developers. So uh, if you are a person who is interested in uh, working with K3 and uh, and probably also some overlap with C and or uh, web technology, uh, you should check out 1010 Data. Uh, if you go to 1010data.com, that's 1010data.com uh, and check out the careers section, uh, you can take a look at the uh, job listings there. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll, once again, <laughs> include a link in the description in case uh, by the time you finish this episode, you forgot what the link it was. It's a uh, jingle for, for 1010data.com. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you sing it, John? Come on. Next time, next time you come on with a, with a plug, we're going to get you to sing a little jingle. I've been, I've been sternly instructed by the marketing department <laughs> that I'm not supposed to sing this anymore. This is a problem that you've run into before. I understand. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, well, well, yeah, last but not least, we'll hop over to Marshall, who's got a follow-up that will may, may or may not bleed into uh, our topic for today. So Yeah. yeah uh, so last time we talked about this uh, problem, the you have a list and you want the largest sum of any of any slice from the list, any contiguous subarray um, to the maximum subarray sum problem. Um, and the well-known algorithm for this is called Cadane's algorithm, which the idea is that you go across the array sequentially and you build up um, you build up what the largest sum is that ends where you currently are. And then you also keep track of the largest sum that ends anywhere. Um, so both of these are pretty easy to maintain, and that turns out to be fairly fast. Um, and Connor said what he wants to do is to, you know, write this algorithm in the typical style in APL with a scan and then a fold, and then just have the language, you know, do whatever is fastest. And as part of that, um, I, he can clarify maybe, but um, he said, well, the fastest way to do this is to write it, is to interleave the loops and write it in sequential C. And I said, I'm not sure about that. And now I'm very not sure about that. Uh, <laughs> because I, what, what I did was, um, was I looked at the, I looked at how you would parallelize this. And I found there's actually a a more you know nicer in terms of algebraically way to approach it, which is instead of just having this left to right information about you know the largest sum that ends here and the largest sum total, you really want four values, four values for any slice of the array, not just one that starts at the beginning. So you want to know what the largest sum is total, but also the largest sum that ends at the right, the largest one that starts at the left and the sum of the entire array. And then once you have that, you can combine slices in any order, which means that you can rearrange it and do it in parallel. Um, so I did a you know handwritten uh, SIMD implementation of that, and I found that it's faster than the C implementation. I don't know what conclusion you really draw from this, because you couldn't write the algorithm in APL now, really. I mean, you could write something like it, but it wouldn't resemble the SIMD code at all, because it has to... Um, like you have to think about, you know, which how things are packed together in registers. And actually, I even had to split the whole array in half in order to get in order to fill up a whole register. Um, so the algorithm is kind of more different from Cadane's algorithm than I thought. But on the other hand, you know, maybe maybe a language that is really performance oriented should be pushing you towards identifying these kind of, you know, if you have a fold, you should try to make it associative. And this is this is a way to make it associative. So C doesn't really encourage you to do that. I don't think any other language does right now. But that, as far as I know, is the fastest way to do it. And it also, um, that way you can split it across cores, run it on any number of cores, run it on a GPU, whatever. So yeah, that's the follow-up. 
So this is fantastic. I agree with everything you just said. And what I should, and I think this is, I was just talking about this with someone in the last couple of weeks is that I, I don't think I personally do a good enough job uh, articulating what I'm thinking with like my GPU brain or my CPU brain. And I think a lot of the time I'm implicitly thinking with my GPU brain because that's mostly what I do for work. And then Marshall ends up responding with like a vectorization or something. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, that's like a, you know, 4X speed up. But like I was thinking, you know, about something on the GPU. So yeah, well, in, th in this case, it's not a huge speed up. It's like 30% or something, I think. Yes, I, I mean, because there's a lot of overhead and packing it all into vectors, and you know, having four pieces of information and dealing with the ragged, ragged edges, right? Uh, I just didn't bother with that. I mean, it's a constant, uh, constant cost, but but it adds to uh, a lot of complexity to the implementation. Yeah, every time you do, you know, one of these striding SIMD things. So what I was going to say is that uh, when I was talking about the folding both loops, aka one that's a scan and one that's a reduce into a single loop. I'm talking about that being the fastest like sequential implementation. I mean, yeah, that that's the fastest that you can do like directly from what you write to um like without introducing new algorithmic thinking. Um I wasn't sure. I mean, I thought like maybe there's a way to take this scan and do something that's that's like fairly mechanical or that's a known process and turn it into um like if it was associative, then yeah, there are standard ways to implement an associative scan fast. Um, but with this, you have to you know add this extra data and do a lot of thinking. Which maybe there's a systematic, uh, maybe there's you know some transformation that turns it into that. But I don't know what that would be. So my my I completely agree with you, and my assertion is like that translation is possible. This like four piece of information turn this into an associative operation that you can then do in parallel. Uh, I don't know that my statement that I'm about to make is true, but I think it is possible because I know that uh, I've talked to Trolls Henriksen about this problem and problems like it and how he approaches it in Futhark. And he says it's an extremely challenging problem and, and doesn't know of an existing way to do it. But I also know that like the folks out of Carnegie Mellon, they have a library called ParleyLib where they have a Cadane's uh, implementation of this problem uh, that also does like a has a parallel uh, collection of algorithms and they do the same like keep four pieces of information and i know that there's like enough problems that are like this where if you just do it sequentially it's not parallelizable but if you like modify the operation i think even um guy Steele gave a talk back in the 2000s when he was working on fortress which is like a parallel fortran and in that talk, he talks about a similar problem called <clears throat> rainwater, where you're given this like uh, some people. It, there's different versions of the problem where you know it's a it's a skyline of a you know downtown or something. This one it's supposed to just be like a mountainous range. Anyways, I, I don't need to explain the problem in detail, but he does this exact thing where he solves it sort of serially, but then shows, hey, look if we try and do some algebraic thing where we build up a monoid or half a monoid or whatever the algebraic term is, and then once we have this operation we can then go and parallelize it. So I don't know that it's possible. Well, I mean, it's clearly possible because the two the two methods give the same results. So no, I don't. Uh, it's the mechanization of I want to write the and also we should clarify. You said APL solution earlier. Technically, the APL one's broken because their scans broken, you know, insert extra inflammatory statements. But in BQN, it works. And that's where you write the, you know, max reduced and then scan with your fork. Uh, for the binary operation, like I want to be able to write that and then 
have a sophisticated enough interpreter or compiler that like sees that expression and goes, oh, we can parallelize this by generating what you said basically looks extremely different and is a different algorithmic solution. But like, that is my pipe dream is like, write The easiest, most expressive thing that like naively, when you look at it, it's like, oh, you're materializing a, an array from the scan and then doing a reduction on that. And like, Best case is you're not materializing that array. Best, best case is like it completely changes what you would think naively happens and creates this like associative operation that can then be parallelized. Yeah, well, I mean, so we know that's technically possible. What you do is um, you go through sequentially every possible algorithm and you go, for each <laughs> algorithm, you go through every possible proof that it's equivalent to the algorithm that you asked for. Um, and then finally, find one, you know, I, I think Rice's theorem might have a <laughs> might have a bone to pick with that. You can figure out the the best possible algorithm with a bounded um, it, like if you bound the length of the algorithm and the length of the proof. Um, so I mean, and then we know because I did it, it's possible to have this other algorithm. So eventually, that would find this algorithm, but it would take a long time. Is that the is that the the Mathematica the Wolfram model of computation isn't that their idea more or less you type in solve cadanes it comes up with well the the wolfram model is also the the somewhat more realistic version of what marshall is proposing which is where instead of diagonalizing on the fly when you compile things you build a database of transformations that you can do algebraically on code and as long as you know you you're dealing with uh, compositions of primitives that are well behaved in certain ways, then you know you can you can identify special combinations and optimize them. The problem is that there is an enormous combinatoric explosion of possible combinations that you might want to make special. Well, I mean, so obviously another another thing the compiler could do is just have Cadane's algorithm in particular hard coded. So <laughs> <laughs> just make it a primitive then and then problem solved. We know there are various ways that a compiler could handle this. And the question is, you know, is it practical for it to handle this and similar problems? Um, and that's what we don't know. Um, and part of the reason why it's hard to figure out whether it's practical or not is that we can't prove it's impossible because it is possible. So it's hard to say where, like, how much could a compiler do if you just gave it uh, the scan and reduce thing as input? I think it's an incredibly interesting problem to solve, though, that like in my pipe dream world, there is like a hierarchy of algorithms. And there's actually only like a very small set of fundamental algorithms at like the root of your hierarchy. You know, there's reductions, there's scans, there's maps. You get into like the uh, cut category, as they call it in J. But like you can very quickly like implement 80% of other algorithms just as like specializations of those fundamental ones. And then the problem becomes is like how can you define a coherent set of transformations just based on those that like primitive fundamental small set. And if you can do that correctly, I think like like you said, the generalization of this, where we're not hard coding, recognizing the eight symbols that spell <laughs> that spell Cadanes and BQN, but like, you know, it's a generalized, oh, we see this pattern, we can do X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah, I think like you can actually get quite far with that. Um, this is, there's a language design principle that, uh, that Stephen Apter and I have talked about a, a few times. 
tiling space, like you, you think of the collection of primitives that you have available in, say, K, and, you know, there, there are first order compositions of those and second order and, and so on. And it is it is clearly the case that K is a Turing complete language. And it is clearly the case that there are many, many simple compositions that are useful. Um, but the, you know, the, the open questions are, if you change the set of primitives that you have available, would there be, you know, a wider range of things that you cover that nicely fall out of simple compositions? Uh, you know, are more of them useful? And are there things that are just ugly, nasty, uh, you know, inherently twisty knots that can't be nicely decomposed into a set of primitives or they can't be built up from a set of primitives. Yeah, well, I think that is actually one of the really nice properties of programming with primitives is that um, they don't cover all this space very easily. So um, that means, and yes, there are definitely these horrible twisty things. Um, there's, you take a nice problem and then you introduce a bug. So you say, <laughs> Have this nice problem. Also, the third result, the third element of the result should come out wrong. Right. And that's horrible and twisty. Uh, and so it's very good that these array algorithms made out of primitives can't easily get into that space because it's much harder to have a bug. Yeah, I was I was gonna say I had the exact same thought about uh primitive choice as like uh combinator slash juxtaposition uh choice in, in array languages. Like to my knowledge, the only languages that have experimented with combinators and composition patterns are the array languages. Like J was the first one that chose as their two train, the S combinator and the D combinator. And then for their dyadic uh, for, or for their three trains, phi combinator and phi one, which they call hook and fork and some other stuff. But then APL came along, dialog APL, and like changed that choice. They kept the phi and phi one combinators, but they changed S and D to be B and B one. But like that was... That was it. You know, I think every other language since then has sort of done that. I know. Uh, well, the stack-based languages do a lot of um, combinator-type stuff. Yeah, but that's kind of different. I don't think any of the stack languages have at least implemented as a part of the standard library. Like the these languages aren't all going to do the combinators the same. Anyways, I just think it's interesting that like you know, and, and it's the same thing with like the alternating you know uh, three trains versus four trains, five trains, like that model just is what it is. But like no one's ever experimented like, oh, instead of it toggling from, you know, even an odd, what if it's like three train, four train, five train, and then it cycles, right? Like, I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm just saying, I'm just saying like, there is like an infinite number of options. And we've only ever, uh, you know, the array languages are the only ones to explore it. And they kind of just like they tested out once in J. Roger thought that was a mistake. They switched it, and we called it a day since then. Um, well, arguably, you know, there's the dissenting opinion in in K, uh, which has you know its its straight train composition model instead of having forking as a you know as a primitive composition. Yeah. I mean, I a lot of the times that's what you want, right? In in simple problems, it's just and like pipelines. Yeah, that's the you know, a lot of the times I like to do point-free programming or tacit programming, and then I'll be building up just a sequence of unary compositions. And it's like, well, I've got, in BQN, I've got two options. I can just keep them in the braces and ha have the X, or I can remove the braces and then add a bunch of like, what is it called? Nothing in BQN, where the dot, 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 which is like, I actually like it quite a bit because it's... Oh, I mean, the only difference between K trains and this restricted set of BQN trains is nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a funny joke. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's, it's also what TAC and an APL, right? So all you would have to do to translate a K train to either APL or BQN is just add parentheses around every monadic application. Um, so in BQN, you also have this alternate thing where instead you can put nothing as the left argument. And then it says, well, that means there's no left argument. Um, so that's a little nicer because you need one symbol instead of two. But um, yeah, so K trains, other than the syntax, which is important, they're a special case of APL, BQN, not quite J trains. All right. Well, this discussion has been great. <laughs> Should we segue into a different problem? <laughs> the listeners all haven't uh because that definitely wasn't dense at all um <laughs> now that your brains are warmed up yeah so at the at the end of our last episode marshall and i and uh, the other panelists got into a discussion because i just randomly brought up this problem that let's get the exact name of it it'll be in the show notes it's called sliding subarray beauty i believe it was a part of leak code contest 342 doesn't really matter but I brought this problem up because I like to solve these problems. And when I stumbled across this one, my first thought was that this is a problem that doesn't actually lend itself very well to the array languages. And honestly, a lot of the times when I hit these problems, I just skip them. I just like, well, this was not meant for this paradigm. Move on. <laughs> and then the next time I see a problem and it's like, oh, you know, calculate the maximum number in the columns of this matrix. And I'm like, oh, boy, oh, boy, that's two characters. I'll solve, I'll, I'll solve this one. Uh, and so I brought this up and then we ended up having a mini discussion about it. And so I think the, the rest of this episode for the next, you know, 45 minutes or so will be kind of just thinks he's what he knows is going to happen for 45 entire minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's a bit, uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, the hubris. Yes. I should, uh, you know, uh, take a step back cause, uh, I, we rarely get five minutes, uh, you know, uh, knowing where we're going. So I guess I'll, I'll start off by re-articulating the problem, and then probably I'm going to change it slightly immediately. So, I mean, I, everyone looked at this problem statement, and then I'm going to change it because uh, I think it makes it more interesting. So you're basically given a an array of integers. And if we're being explicit, the problem states that uh, these values can be between negative uh, 50 and 50. This is my first change, is they can be any integer value, because I think that's... Uh, that's that's how I explained the problem in the last video. Negative fifty to fifty is one of those like immediately suspicious things in a in a yeah. programming puzzle, isn't it? I think I want a hundred ele hundred one element lookup <laughs> table. Exactly. That was a couple of the solutions were, and I was like, well, I mean, and uh, yeah. So it's more interesting if there can be any integer value for whatever int thirty two or sixty four. Details don't matter a ton, and then you're going to be given uh, two other values k and x. Uh, k is going to be the sliding window length, and x is going to be sort of the x smallest value that you're looking for. And so um, I'll, I'll read out the second example because I think it's the easiest. You're given the values negative uh, 1 to negative 5. So negative 1, negative 2, negative 3, negative 4, negative 5. And you're given a sliding window value of 2, so you're going to look at two elements at a time, and then you're given an x value of 2, which means you're going to be looking at the technically the largest, the second smallest, but in this case, because uh, k is equal to x, you're always going to be looking for the largest. And so then you basically just do a sliding window, you know, an n-wise reduction in APL. You can do it a couple different ways in BQN, and you just calculate what's the uh, x smallest. So in this case, you could technically do a... So what do we, they want to know, the x 
smallest for each window for each window yes so your result uh, is a list yeah so yeah the the wrinkle that i haven't mentioned is what we're gonna ignore <laughs> oh, oh and that's because i just think it's uh I, I well i mean we can talk about if i mean it really twists the knife on uh on having a nice neat solution to it though uh well so we can talk about two different solutions but the wrinkle is that it only wants you to uh tell you what the x smallest is if it's negative so if the if the x smallest, so if you're looking for, in this case, the second smallest value, but that value is positive, they just basically want you to floor it uh, to zero. Um, which, I mean, I don't think for my solution, it was an extra two characters, zero floor or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you can just do it at the end. But uh, it sounds like maybe for John's uh, solution, it uh, is a bit nicer. Yeah, it, it just, you know, adds adds some uh, some complication. Yeah, and I think maybe so ramble ramble over maybe uh one one person here can very briefly re-articulate what i said just in case if there's a listener that's on a run or doing dishes and doesn't have the ability to go look at this problem statement and read it for themselves because uh, sometimes it's it's good to hear a problem statement two different ways anyone want to okay so you're, you're given a list uh you're you're asked to view it in sliding overlapping windows of size uh of size k and uh for each of those windows, uh, they want to know the uh, the xth order statistic um, of the negative numbers uh, capped at zero in that sliding window. Perfect. Yep, I understood that. Hopefully, hopefully the listener understands that. And uh, and so, I, before we actually talk about the solutions, I thought, and this is what we disagreed on, and maybe Marshall has you know had time to realize I was right or definitely realize that he was right and I was wrong. Or explain that we didn't disagree. <laughs> yeah. I thought the time complexity of this was big O of the length of the array uh, times uh, K log K. Because you're basically doing a sort, like the way that I naively, I should say this for the naive solution. I'm not sure if there's a better one out there. But the way that I did this in BQM was basically just use uh, windows or ranges, whatever the dyadic version of uh, ranges. Windows, yeah. Windows. And so that creates a matrix. And then I basically sort each row, and then I just pick the X the largest. So you're doing yeah. a, a N log N linear rhythmic uh, sort, which is in the length of your window K. So that's K log K. And you're doing that. Technically, it's N minus X, but X is constant. So it's the big O of N times K log K. But I think Marsh. Yeah, well, and on the restricted range, it would be a linear time sorting. Uh, yes. So then it would be NK. Right. Correct. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm not sure are folks on the because I remember Marshall. Maybe it was that we were not thinking because I think you had said that there was like a strictly linear solution that you were thinking about. Um, well, I don't remember what exactly it is, but for um, <laughs> if you want just the the total minimum value from every window, so this is. X is zero, I think, or or maybe one, depending on how they're indexing it. Um, yeah, X is one, yeah. X is one. Then I believe there's a way where you keep a, a queue of all the smallest elements you've seen. Well, some sort of queue of smallest elements, and you'll update this as you see new values. And the way it works is you're not guaranteed to have some number of operations at every step, but the total number of operations should come out linear, but I'm not exactly sure how 
like what the algorithm was. I'd have to work it out again. Yeah. So my my thought that, and I think I said this last episode was that you know the time complexity that I just stated was for doing it naively in like an array language because I don't really know how to translate my C plus plus solution of this. Is that there's a data structure called a min heap which has log n insertions that you use for like there's a classic interview problem of like you need to keep track of some sort of uh, what do they call it telemetrics data for like the last three days and so you're updating some blah 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 value and the way you do it is you basically you look at the first k values create a min heap from that and then you can basically because you know what value you're popping off each time you step you do like a delete and insert and then you can get the uh, the value very quickly and then I think the time complexity of that ends up being big O of the length of the array uh, log k or something that like that. Right. Um, so instead of doing a sort, you're doing two different uh, deletions and insertions, which are each log k. And well, and the key thing is that by using a uh, a heap backed uh, priority queue in that way, not only do you get the ability to update it as you roll it along, but also it allows you to get the nth order statistic. So it isn't it doesn't rely on baking in the assumption that it's the first element. It could be, you know, the second, third, et cetera. Right, right. Because you have the heap ordering to to guide the efficient lookup. Is it, is it actually log k or is it log x? Because you actually only need to store Oh no! I think you do. Have, you do have to store all the, of it. The size of the heap has to be the size yeah, yeah, of the window. Because if you do, but, yeah, yeah. but the amount the amount that you walk down to find the nth order statistic to you know as an alternative to like quick selecting or something is uh, is based on right. log of that. So I guess that's uh, hopefully the listeners are still hanging on here. Um, but now I guess now is the so that my sort of uh, goal of bringing it up last episode. Is like, is there a array solution to this that doesn't fall into that naive category where you're just basically sorting every sliding window? Is is yeah? Because to to recap, the naive approach in an array language is you slice the whole structure into the windows, and then for every one of those slices, you want to uh, filter it, sort it, and uh, and extract the nth element yeah. from it with with a cap appropriately yeah. uh, based on how your language handles outdexing or what what have you which is like definitely suboptimal compared to some imperative solution where you're updating some min heap or something like that so a minor point on on when we talk about complexity the usual measure for complexity is big o and when you say an a problem is in big o of f of x that means that the optimal um runtime is bounded by f of x. So it's actually like, if I tell you, oh, this problem is big O of e to the x, and you say, no, it's it's linear, it's big O of x, I was still right, because it is bounded by e to the x. Um, so when you say, you know, I've shown that this algorithm is big O of this number, or of, of this function, um, that's just an upper bound. And people don't generally, I mean, it's pretty hard to prove a lower bound. Um, but if you had a lower bound, you would use like theta, which says that it actually grows corresponding to this function. The, the point you, you generally want to relatively type down because otherwise it isn't a very helpful categorization. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously, if I tell you the algorithms O of e to the x, it's like, yeah, I'm right, but you know, <laughs> not very helpful. You're not going to say, oh, great, problem solved. <laughs> well, a, another thing that I don't think got brought up uh, in in the previous discussion for this is that the Efficient uh, priority queue approach to this 
has the right complexity class in, in terms of overall performance, but it is also inherently sequential, right? Yes. So, uh, whereas the naive K approach or, you know, APL or what have you is in fact inherently parallel. Yes. So, uh, you know, when, when we start talking about performance on a real computer, it's important to consider that, you know, you can, you can be in the right complexity class and still be slower in practice for many reasons. Well, I, I will say it's, um, it's not like, it's not totally sequential because you can run multiple different sets of windows. Like you can split the array up large scale, mm -hmm. but it's not still like the path you follow every time you insert it in the heap is different. So you're doing like a different time thing every time. I mean, it's more like it could be evaluated concurrently than really in parallel. Well, I mean, but, but in the, uh, in the APL approach, the parallelism is just immediately there. Like in K, it's there's an each yeah. there. And whereas you can recognize that it is possible to contort the C version of this even more in order to harvest more parallelism. But that isn't actually the same algorithm. It's another even more complicated algorithm. Yeah. And just, just in case for the listener, because we all kind of nodded our heads when John said, oh, the the you know uh, priority queue version is inherently sequential and the slotting one is parallel. And we all went, yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> in case the listener didn't hang on to that, the reason that it's inherently parallel is because you can imagine that like a sliding primitive that does a reduction on each of those. I mean, this is a very sophisticated reduction where we're doing some partial sort or sort and then picking out a number. It's not actually like a max reduction, but we're doing some operation on each sliding window. So we could do like a for each sliding window and that primitive could just be parallel where you're passing it off to different cores or, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different strategies. Whereas uh, the priority Q1, the way we explained it, you're doing basically a sequential left, left, uh, left pass on your sequence, which as Marshall pointed out, you could break that up. You could, you know, oh, we're doing yeah. something that does not actually carry. But uh, you are still redoing some work at the overlap. Yeah. Like you have to do a full window before you get anything yeah, out. Exactly. Right. I mean, I guess the same is true in the in the array parallel version. You have to yeah. sort a whole window, but. Yeah, well, and and in in K and in Q, there's uh, depending on which dialect you're dealing with, there's there's each and there's peach, uh, and you know th that the peach implementation is allowed to use different strategies in terms of how it stripes or you know divides up the work across cores. I've used peach a couple. Of the peach for those that haven't uh, guessed stands for parallel each. At least I think it does. I, uh, I think it's for the fruit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should just replace it with the uh, peach emoji. You know, uh, what are we doing here? Uh, you know, we're all about character length. Uh, well, maybe that'll be in the next version of Shakti. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, that would be amazing if they, uh, as an April Fool's, released an actual executable. Arthur has played a little bit with Unicode characters, and you know that's that's where this madness leads. <laughs> but. Uh, Anyway, I was just going to say I've played around with Peach a bit, and I, I've never really—I don't think I've ever used it correctly because I've—I've I've tried to speed some stuff up, and it's like running the exact same. But also, I'm using the trial version that limits you to whatever some n number of cores, so it's—it's it's also potentially. I I think I I think that what it what it does, and remember, this is based on no like like secret knowledge of anything. I think it's really relatively simply just you know bucketing it up across n cores and not doing anything particularly fancy above that but what's what's you know what's nice about it and very neat is the fact that you can just drop it in instead of an each 
And, you know, and it doesn't change anything else about the behavior of your program. It just, you know, takes advantage of parallelism when it's available, which is conceptually uh, pleasant. So I guess to, to wind back a little bit, does anybody have, so this, this is the problem's been stated. We've talked about a couple different solutions. Is everyone's gut reaction to solving this like the naive way or is like, does the elevated array language programmer have that solution, but then they go, oh yeah, but there's a, there's a different way to get a better, better performance profile similar to the priority queue thing that you might be doing in a a non-array language. So I know uh, if um, X, yeah, if X is one, so if you're picking, or of course uh, K, so if you're picking the smallest element or the greatest element, um, this is what I did in dialogue before that I sort of described on the last episode, but I don't think I got it very clear. Um, what you can do, well, so first, um, the the case with two windows, that's a pretty standard thing to do. And the array language is going to, like, I think most array languages are going to do this for you. In BQN, you don't even have, like, you could do this with windows, but it would be slow. What you do is you take your array. All you all you want is the min of each pair of elements or something like that. But what you do is you take two views of your array that are offset by one. So you're going to take one drop of the array and minus one drop of the array. And then you take the minimum of those two arrays. So then that's completely parallel. And that's um, definitely what dialog. I'm pretty sure what Jay does. Um, I think NGNK might not. Um, yeah, you can do it with just a two a two min slash for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if you write two min slash in dialog, that's what it's going to actually translate to, um, because that's just the fast way to do it. You you don't want to um, like if if you did one element at a time, it'd be super slow. Well, and th- this particular you know concept of a of a sliding window of two is so common that K actually elevates it to being an adverb. That's each prior, essentially. So yeah, NGNK probably optimizes that um, as opposed to you know doing it one pair at a time. So yeah, and that's that's like the standard pattern in BQN for doing a two wise thing. I recommend not using Windows for that because you know it's doing a lot of extra work in producing the actual you know list of all the pairs. Okay, so that gets you two. Um, if you want three, uh, well maybe we'll skip to four. If you want four. <laughs> What you do is you... If you want three, you're wrong. Stop. <laughs> it's not a good number. Just for, for the listener, just uh, the problem statement, uh, K can be anything uh, up to the length of the array. So we've solved K equal to two. Yeah, and so we're fixing X at one, but K, K keeps getting higher. Uh, no, so K, K is bounded by N, where N is the length of our sequence. So technically you could have you know, a 10,000 element array and you could say K is equal to 10,000 and X can be anything one to 10,000. Um, but we so we solved two, we're skipping three. We'll, we'll go back to three. It's okay. <laughs> um, so if you want the minimum of four elements, right, you can split those four elements into two pairs and you say, well, I want the minimum of this pair and that pair. So what you do is you first do your pairwise thing on the array. And then what you want is, um, so, you know, element zero is the minimum of the original zero and one, two is the original one and two, and three is the original two and three. Zero, one, and two. Ugh. So 
you actually want to combine your elements zero and two to get the first two pairs that don't overlap put together. So what you'll do is take two drop of the array, min with minus two drop of the array, and so on. If you want eight, you can do you can do those two steps, and then you do four drop minus four drop, and so on. So that gives you the powers of two. Um, for for x equal to one, though. Always for x equal to one. I don't know how to do the higher <laughs> x values. Um, so we'll, we'll keep talking about that, I guess. But if x is one. Um, so all these steps get you the power of two. So k, k equal to two for any values of x equal to one or two. And then k equal to four for, or k equal to powers of two with x equal to one. So we're, we're, get, we're getting there. Uh, yep. Tiling space. Um, so, so basically your algorithm is going to be like a, you know, you're going to have three different implementations <laughs> specializing for like, you know, the first one, the second one. That's that's the array inter language interpreter way, isn't it? That's <laughs> that's how you do it. <laughs> that's what dialog does. If you tell it, you know, k bin slash list, it does this. Um, so then, if you've got a number like three or five or so on, what you want is actually to overlap. Um, so you'll say, when I'm doing three, I don't want two pairs that don't overlap. I want them to overlap by one element. So you're going to do one step with one and then another step with one. And that adds up and you get three. There's an off by one error in this, which is annoying. Um, and so five, you would have to go up to four, but then you just overlap by one after that. Um, and then you're done. So like the number of steps to get you to five is the same as eight and so on with that. It ends up be being a lot like, uh, like, you know, reducing multiplies to shifts. Uh in sort of an analogous sense maybe i mean yeah you could call it a kind of strength reduction you could also say it's it's sort of like a little bit of dynamic programming where you're saying that you know the minimum along all these elements is actually the minimum of these two different subsets but the subsets are shared between different um windows so maybe actually that's a way to uh to approach higher values of x is to say well if x is two and my window size is 100 well, the minimum of, well, yeah, yeah. Then you want the smallest two values. You could split it up into two windows of 50 and you say, get the smallest two of each of those. And then you work out, um, well, and then you combine those together, I guess, which that, that sounds complicated, <laughs> but possible. So, so, so far we've got, uh, you can solve it nicely in an array language if you just change the problem. Um. <laughs> well, if you restrict the problem to the most useful form of the problem, I will point out. <laughs> uh, the most useful form of the problem. That's, All right. You put that on a t-shirt. See, this is the thing. The array language won't let you do dumb stuff like take the fourth smallest value from every window of size 100 who does that it's true it's another common thing isn't it someone uh, a user comes up to an array language person and goes oh, i've got this problem in my code can you help me do this thing and then the array language person goes well what are you actually trying to do and then tells you to write something entirely different because you're actually approaching the problem uh... i don't are we approaching the problem wrong right now i don't think so well no so so we got as far as we're not trying to do sorts or grades yeah well although to be a little more serious on this like a, a min a, i mean this is sort of like a median filter or a order statistic filter i mean i think this is actually useful with x other than one but the most common would be you know a total minimum 
I can see Marshall in a Google interview. They ask him a question. They say, yeah, that's not really, uh, that's not really useful here. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to solve the actual usable version of this. And the guy across the table is just going to grow a guy across the table is going to be like, what is going on? And they're going to try and be like, no, we want to do this. And he's going to, listen, listen, okay? You don't, you clearly haven't done much user-facing stuff. <laughs> see, my worry is just they're going to ask me how to sort a million random integers. And I'm going to say it's this algorithm I came up with. You do a quick sort down to size two to the sixteenth, and you, then you do Robin Hood sort after that. Trust me, they're going to be like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, pot potentially the answer to all of this is just that. Yeah, we just uh, we throw our hands up and we we take the the performance hit, and and that's it. Well, I mean, again, the the thing is, it, it's a problem that is very clearly designed to to be solved using a sliding window and a priority queue backed by a heap, period. That's that's what it's intended uh to be done with. I mean the 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 and there are problems that are that are just you know specifically con concocted around that kind of a conceit. But the fact of the matter is that there's still a fairly elegant parallel solution available in APLs um you know with with the caveat that uh it has uh, you know, a, a difference in how many allocations it has to do, and uh, and so on. It's the only the only other thing I've got to add on this, but it's also kind of specific to at least Dialog APL because uh, I'm guessing Marshall, your Windows thing, that's a flat 3D array, and then your interpreter is doing the traversal when you pick out the nth, what is it, column or something after you've sorted all of them. Oh no, but then oh no, it's the sort rank one that I'm interested in, right? Or the sort each after you've partitioned it, or whatever it's, it's going to be sort each in K, right? Is that there are these flat array partitioned vector sorting idioms? You can find them like on Apple Card. That's where I just looked. So this one involves two grades and a plus scan. But I think in this scenario, it means replicating the list in some way so that you because. Uh, this would only work, you'd basically give um, a Boolean list on the left, a Boolean vector, where a 1 indicates the start of each of your partitions, which would be each of your windows, and then on the right is your list of numbers, and then it does the, it, it gives you the grade for sorting each subarray. Yeah. Uh, but then do you have to do a bunch of modular arithmetic on that after, because you're only going to pick the second from each uh, subarray? What I'm saying is in Dialog APL, when you create this list, no, um, when you do the windows, you get a nested. Yeah, so you're saying you could turn the, the individual sorting into one big grade. And um, um, I mean, I think that would work. The, I mean, the issue is that sorting generally is like in login. So, I mean, you'd by combining all these arrays together, you'd actually you do more work. I mean, unless it's a restricted integer range, which I mean, given that like if they're 32 bit integers, they are a restricted range. Um, but you know, whether it takes advantage of that depends on how many you have, but I know there is, uh, there is code for sort rank one, although all that really does is to, um, you know, take out all the decision making about the size of the array because it knows the, the size is fixed. But there are also um, there are parallel things you could do. So, um, like a sorting network is a really fast way to to sort small arrays. I mean, you just you just have a fixed 
arrangement of comparisons that you do on pairs of elements or swaps. I mean, you like you compare and swap if they're out of order. Um, and so if you have a lot of arrays, actually, you can then pack those into vectors. And since you're doing the same swaps for all the different arrays, um, you have a bunch of very simple vector operations that go together. So yeah, you, you can actually do something with saying, well, I have a bunch of uh, sorts all happening together. But I mean, still fundamentally, it's uh, your complexity is is n times k or higher there. So I mean, if k is large, that's not good. All right. So one comment and one question. One the one comment that is in response to something you said, John, is that this is technically actually like. Yes, this is a concocted leak code problem, but this is actually like a thing that comes up all the time. Um, yeah, this is pretty good for leak code. <laughs> like it, it, technically, I think the primitives in uh, Q, I'm not sure if there's actually like a moving median, but like the moving averages and stuff, I know that's different because you can actually update that in constant time. You don't need a, a you know, heap backed priority Q kind of thing. But this kind of like streaming telemetrics you know, where you're trying to update something over the last 24 hour period and you're popping stuff off and pushing stuff in to update these statistics is definitely like a thing that happens in the real world. So it's, I wouldn't say that this is a completely contrived example. So that was the comment. The question is, so your sort of response was, you know, we, we have actually a decent solution, uh, in APLs, uh, using that umbrella term, if they're parallelized so that you can chunk this stuff up. So the question is, is like today, what of J dialog APL, BQN, uh, KQ, any of the other ones, if we want to mention them, can you actually write that version? So I know that J now has uh, threads. Yeah, threads, colon T. Um, so I think J can do it. Uh, Q should be able to do it with the peach primitive. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's the smallest change because you just, you know, change each to peach. Yeah. With J, you have to. Um, you have to add the threading primitive, so I mean, it's not much either. But you have to add a whole primitive here. In dialog, you have to download a workspace that's a, a model of Peach. Yeah. And to do K B Q N and dialog APL, do they have any way to do that, or would would stuff need to be added? Uh, well, Pe- Peach is in some dialects of K. As the word Peach? Uh, yeah. So, or sometimes it's underbar. Underbar. I thought underbar was drop. Uh, well, it depends on the dialect. <laughs> <laughs> in in older versions in in k2 and k3 uh an underbar prefix on a name is how how you supply all of the the built-ins um you know the the the, the stuff that the stuff that's it's technically a primitive but it's it's infrequently used enough that it gets pushed off into this ugly space of of getting actual uh english names for things uh like you know like sv and vs for the um, you know, encode and decode. Um, this is what Kers think English is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was that you reading off a well-named function, SV, SBNS, or something like that? Under underbar SV and underbar VS are a pair of um, of built-ins in K3 for doing um, what what is called decode and encode in uh, several other array languages. Gotcha. Scalar vector, vector scalar is you know where where the name comes from. Oh yeah, I've actually I've seen that somewhere. I'm not sure if it was in the yeah, yeah, and and then you know in K5 it, it's there's also an APL SV and an APL VS if you're interested in history. <laughs> uh, the SV was shared variables, I think. Oh great! Oh no! 
<laughs> so some keys you can do it. So the old document called Peach uh, for Dialog APL, but that is what evolved into what's called Futures and Isolates, which is a, uh, like I say, right now it's a, a workspace you have to download to do it, and it it doesn't do um, threads on different cores. So say it's it's TCP. Well, I guess technically it is, but it's like sending stuff over TCP in the setup for that's quite quite intensive, I think. So you like set up a web um, server and then you can run things in parallel. Yeah, <laughs> literally right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's totally, there are symbols uh, assigned for it. And um, yeah, BQN, if you want to do it in parallel, you you have to spawn processes really. So uh, you're doing that through the shell pretty much on your own. Well, and, and it's one of those things where like, you know, semantically, each and peach are supposed to be the same operation. It's just that one of them is faster if if you use it in the right situations. And so there's kind yeah. of the... I mean, assuming your operand doesn't do, doesn't have side effects and change stuff. Yeah, which is, you know, part of the judgment that goes into that. But like in a, you know, in a, in a pure sense... That's why they're different primitives at all. Well, and, you know, the... There, there are situations where it, you know, if you know that the the set is small, you know it's not going to be faster, so don't don't bother. But no, but that goes back to Connor's question of like, you know, don't you want to just spell it, and it should know. Is that what you were getting to? Sorry, I interrupt you as well. Yeah, that, that, that's where I'm getting. Like from a certain perspective, uh, you should say like, well, Pete shouldn't be its own uh, separate primitive because ideally the interpreter just identifies, oh, this is a good situation. I'm just going to do this in parallel. That would be, you know, that would be ideal from a programmer's perspective. But there's a, a big trade-off in, in complexity in order to make it, you know, make that choice right or wrong versus make it a really, really easy change for the programmer to explicitly put in that piece of information. Yeah, um, it's that high-level versus low-level distinction again. Um, well, and, and, you know, and, and it's not a very low-level uh, it, it doesn't require the programmer to change their reasoning about it. It's just what, like one little bit of high levelness versus low levelness, and I mean the right answer is not always to go to the highest level. A lot of people, you know, just intuitively think that, but especially when you want performance, you have to have some control. Which I think for J threads, Henry decided that he was going to put it in automatically for matrix multiplication, but but past that, he hasn't put anything else in yet. Yeah, well, and presumably it's got a size threshold that it's um, testing for that. Which is the same kind of reasoning that the programmer makes when they're, you know, deciding whether or not, like in J, you know, you have a an, an elevated ability to uh, know whether or not you've got a, a complicated composition with no side effects versus in, in K, you know, once once you go into a lambda, everything goes up out the window and it could it could do nasty things that need to be accounted for. But I mean, the language, the implementation could inspect the source of that, right? Or even the bytecode. Yeah, I, I mean potentially, but it, it's sort of the you know the the banana in the monkey's hand in the jungle kind of kind of problem where <laughs> you know in, in the in the simplest case it's easy to uh, to do that inspection, and in a contrived case you can make it very expensive and complicated to do that inspection. Yeah, well, you could make it undecidable if you wanted. Mm -hmm. But I mean, uh, I think there would be a lot of cases where. You've got a function that you write, and it uses only local variables inside the function, right? So mm -hmm. it's not a crazy thing to expect. It's just that they don't do it. And I mean, BQN doesn't do any of this either. Neither does APL. Nobody's really doing this, but, you know, it's possible. I mean, in, in the same sense that you could kind of, you could constructively determine that some subset of compositions represents an associative operation or not. 
Uh, but, you know, for the general case, uh, there's lots of things that you can't make that determination. Yeah, but if you're working with side effects, like it's, I mean, if you have a local variable in a function that you can change that all you want, it's not going to escape. If you change a global variable, yeah, all bets are off. Um, if you call a function that reads a file, <laughs> no hope, um, things like that. But I mean, there's a whole lot of useful stuff that you can do with just a Lambda function that has, that does some computations that keeps its own variables and stuff. Like that doesn't seem to me anywhere near the amount of work of, of proving like things are associative and actually having that work a fair amount of the time. Sure. Yep. Something for the future. <laughs> You know, like the, the like the design of K involves a lot of kind of trying to find the global minimum complexity, and that means that a certain amount of of stuff that would be nice for programmers gets thrown out the window in the pursuit of making it so that your program is simpler and the in, the interpreter is simpler, and there's there's a little bit more that the, the user has to think about. Or there's something that the user would like to have, and no, you're not allowed to have that because it would add too much complexity to the implementation. Yeah, and having an implementation you can like think about easily is really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. that doesn't have surprising... It's all trade-offs. Right. And if you don't put that constraint and you end up with J. But J doesn't do it either. <laughs> Just for matrix multiplication. Well, but J, J does more of that kind of thing. And J has, you know, a, a richer a numeric tower. And it has, uh, you know, it has a lot, lot more. It, it, it has a larger set of special combinations and a whole bunch of bells and whistles that K dispenses with. Uh, and, you know, that... I think Stephen after said we, when we interviewed him, I think he said uh, J was a challenge for him because it was so big, such a big language. There was so much to learn about it. There's K is so much simpler. And equally as powerful, if not more so. So TLDL is when you have a program that isn't quote-unquote nicely solvable in an array language, you have to redefine your definition of nice because due to the primitives that exist, like a lot of arrays problems can be solved with this tiling kind of operations or cutting operations. And those, a lot of the times, are very easily parallelizable. So then the question is, is it actually nicer? Um, and I actually prefer, like I wrote the solution to this in BQN, and minus the fact that it is a, a problem that takes three arguments. Uh, so really like the most verbose part of the problem is uh, unstructuring the XK in the list of numbers. This is a one-liner. It's, you know... Uh, and technically, I did it the slow way using uh, Windows, which um, is is suboptimal. But like in an array language where uh, I think, you know, I, I believe Q and K have multi, you know, X, Y, and Z. So you wouldn't have to do that destructuring. And uh, in, a, in a language that had a, a fast Windows version and it wasn't like a performance hit, you you can write this in basically a single line of code. And like I prefer writing that compared to my, you know, heat back priority queue uh you know it's a lot easier yeah i mean it's it's worth considering that like we're we're very sensitive to what we describe as being an ugly or complicated solution in the array languages <laughs> but it's still like a 20 character solution versus you know literally like easily a, a full page of of fairly naughty c plus plus with lots of situations where you could go wrong whereas the you know the k version is a little bit 
uh, a little bit more complicated than a you know three adverbs chained together, but uh, you know there, there's no real potential for off by one errors. There's not a lot of places that it can go wrong. It's still pretty concise and it's still reasonably performant. Yeah, I mean the big problem is the performance. Like if you get into huge window sizes, um, I mean I I could definitely see a situation where you're you know building some product and at some point you want the smallest 20 percent filter and uh you do this and it's just not fast enough like it takes a few seconds to run and like that's really a pain well you know in the world of industrial k programming you know how we solve those problems c yeah you write a c implementation you wrap it in a little dll and you call it from k no problem just like all of the built-ins in k yeah it's you know k has uh has an ffi and uh, you know, at 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 ten ten data, for example, there's a fair number of of things that involve like thorny string manipulation and dealing with with Unicode. Unicode is not something that's just you know for free built into K three. And every time inherently uh, sequential things like that have to happen, you just write write the the hot parts of it in C. And you wrap it up in a nice library, and then you don't have to worry about that. You you can write your higher level logic in K, and uh, you know, and it works. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, if uh, if we found an array solution to to arbitrary x values, I mean, that would be pretty cool. It would probably be you know less error prone than the C version. Maybe not. You know, it might be really crazy complicated. It's hard to say before you actually solve these problems, but. Um, so, and I mean, that's the other thing, like if you find a nice array solution, it's almost always the case that now maybe not like implemented in K or APL, but it's almost always the case that this is a fundamentally faster algorithm than what you would write in C. Um, so like if you took this algorithm and wrote it out, you know, by hand doing all the, you know, specifying which vector instructions you're using where, um, it would end up you know, at least as fast as the sequential C solution and, you know, probably two times faster or something really depends on the problem. But I mean, this array thinking is a really good way to develop fast algorithms, even if they're hard to actually implement in a fast way. And from a different angle entirely, you know, consider that in in any of these array languages, you could write the, uh, the heat-backed priority queue version of this thing you get the correct complexity class. It would be very, very slow and very, very ugly. But you could still express if you if you wanted to, you know, just hypothetically, you could express that algorithm, and it might even be more concise than the C plus plus version. It's just not really working with the grain of these languages. It's not like unbearably slow. It's, uh, I mean, BQN is pretty fast to scalar stuff. It, it's about ten times C usually. I think K would be about twenty. Um, Dialogue really is kind of slow. It means you're you're in the same you're in the same ballpark as you know garden variety scripting languages at that point. And you know a lot of people do actually write Python and and somehow <laughs> endure its its performance. So you know and, and what do the Python programmers do when it's too slow? They write C and then they wrap it in a DLL and then they call it, <laughs> or they write Fortran or they or they coerce someone else to write Fortran and then they wrap it in a DLL and call it. This is a big point in favor of when Henry was on and he was talking about TPLs, the true programming languages. And and then I said, not because I believe this, but I know that there's people out there that would say, well, if, 
in n different cases, you're saying, oh, and then I'll just write some C code and call it like, oh, it kind of seems like C maybe is the TPL uh, for some argument of uh, or definition of uh, TPL. Uh, and, and that's what I was actually thinking at one point when you started saying that. I was like, I wonder, I wonder if at any point the solution is just, you know, solving this in a different language and then calling into it. I mean, have you ever wondered why they named C after the speed of light? Is that what they did? <laughs> I mean, that's my interpretation. I think it's a lot more exciting than saying, well, you know, it's the language that came after B. <laughs> <laughs> but from a conceptual, from a philosophical standpoint, C is definitely the the speed of light in the mind of many programmers. You know, despite the fact that in, in a lot of situations when you're doing numerical code, Fortran is better because it has simpler aliasing behavior and your compiler is more able to reason about the programs. All right. We've only got a couple minutes left. Uh, are there... Closing thoughts, things things people want to say on the air before we wind things down. My TLDR of this was if you get a problem that doesn't fit an array language, convince the person they should be solving a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a like anytime you get a problem, try and try and solve a different one. Any problem at all. Chuck Moore, the designer of Forth, had the the saying quantize brutally. You know, if you're if you're tasked with a, a problem that has a lot of moving parts, just just throw some of them out, simplify the problem. And obviously, there are lots of situations where you know your client or what have you will uh, will balk at this approach. But in those situations, perhaps Chuck was was right all along when everything is said and done. You're saying Chuck the client out? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> if they're the problem. <laughs> I mean, do you you want to make money or you want to write beautiful programs? You got to decide <laughs> which one is going to you know satisfy you more when you're on your deathbed. Did you create a bunch of value for shareholders, or did you create a couple of of really beautiful jewels of functional programming? I mean, hopefully both. Um, <laughs> not that I care about creating shareholder value, but I do care about having money. <laughs> There's only a couple people that I know that sold their language for a couple, couple million dollars. Uh, if you, you know. want to do both, I hear there's an opening at Ten Ten Data. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any last? Uh, I mean, I feel like it's hard to top that. Uh, well, I'll go with contact at arraycast.com if you want to get in touch with us. And uh, we've had uh, a number of different people email us over the last week, one of which was an interesting topic for a future show, perhaps, is large systems written in APL and how you how you develop those, um, whether APL is or ERA languages are just basically built for lead code, which, of course, we know they're not just built for lead code, but... Um, Quite the opposite. The opposite, yeah. Lead code is built for APL? Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as proven by this episode. Well, maybe the contrapositive, lead code is built for not APL. <laughs> um, but I saw a recent discussion where somebody said, well, they, they started to talk about large programs that were written in the array languages, but the, lang the, the code that's written isn't that large. So that kind of proves their point, is that... It's still small, <laughs> even though it's large for an array language. Anyway, it would be worth you know exploring at some point. I think um, how we approach working in larger systems. How you know you work in a large system and and play nice in the playground. Um, 
I'm gonna. I'm willing to disappoint listeners by saying that 1010 Data's code base does not fit on one sheet of paper, despite being implemented in K. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably interaction with the real world and problems to be solved and not making uh, customers into problems. He didn't specify font size. Um. Anyway, didn't need to. <laughs> The, you know, the plank length does exist. So, <laughs> I didn't know you didn't want, you wanted spaces between the numbers, I think is one of the answers that somebody gave. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, um, contact at arraycast.com if you want to get in touch with us. That's, that's my spiel. And also, if you're listening to this and you've been, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, your fire's been coming out of your ears or whatever. Smoke's been coming out of your ears because you're thinking, why didn't they talk about this solution? Feel free to, you know, you can do it on GitHub or just send us the code on email. And uh, if we get any very interesting solution ideas that we totally missed, uh, yeah, we'll be happy to maybe not have a whole part two on this, but definitely mention it as a follow-up in, in a future episode. All right. Well, John, once again, thanks for coming on and being promoted to, uh, you know, a uh, guest panelist from guest to guest panelist. That's part of the promotion. We'll, we'll come up with some sort of Pikachu evolution, uh, you know, or po Pokemon, that's what they call it. So the kids used to call it back in my day. Um, so you're, you're now, I don't know what level Pokemon you are, but, uh, what mm. moves does he know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's struggle for sure. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is, this has been awesome. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have you back at some point, uh, as uh, either a guest panelist or, or something else in the future. Well, thanks for having me. And with that, we'll say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming.